Right. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. You just turn to the middle. You might land in Psalms, Psalms, Proverbs, then the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're continuing in this series for this book. The thing that we primarily do as we move through books of the Bible, passage by passage, and um, the book of Ecclesiastes is a wonderful, honest book that, that has quite a few punches in it. Uh, it is, it's a tough book in many ways to, to process, and today will be no different. We're going to read uh, seven verses from Solomon, and one person uh, that I read this week said that about these seven verses, the tone is quiet, but the words are razor sharp. <laughs> Elsewhere described as quietly crushing. <laughs> quietly crushing. That's a little bit of what this morning is going to feel like. And this is what the Word of God does to us at times. It is, it is razor sharp. And Solomon's words here, his warning to us about our casualness towards God is a word that we need to hear. It's a reality check for us. And so we're going to follow the grain of, of what he is saying this morning and even the tone because what he tells us is something that we need to hear. Let's read together starting in verse 1 chapter 5 through verse 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Not a uh, college basketball fan, but I gather there's something going on in, in March that people are paying attention to. And... Uh, it did remind me this week of a story I read years ago about uh, this particular fan of University of Virginia. The UVA team was his team, and UVA was playing Duke in the ACC championship. And I remember reading this article. It featured this, uh, this young man named Danny, who was a super fan of UVA. And what he decided to do was he was such a fan, he wanted to see the action close up, and so what he decided to do was he was going to fake his way into appearing like a team manager so that he could be on the floor of the court. So he bought a suit uh, that, that looked like a manager's suit, and just before the game started, as he bought his regular tickets, he walked in, he walked down the aisle, and, and then he lifted up the gate that leads to the floor, and then he walked onto the floor, and he went and he sat with the team. And no one stopped him. Not a single person got in his way. 
No one questioned him because he, he looked the part and, and he was dressed the part and he was even talking. He even like talked to people as he went down. He acted like he was a manager and so people assumed that he belonged there. I mean, it's amazing what you can get away with uh, if you look the part, if you walk and talk the part. There's even pictures of him, uh, you know, leaning in on the huddle. I mean, he got away with this. And so he's, he's there, he's leaning in as, as the team is huddling up, just like he's with the other people of the team. There's other pictures of him as, as the team won. By the way, UVA won that championship, and so it was the greatest day of his life. He got to live out his fantasy on the court. He was there, um, the confetti falling down. And there's a picture of him just like doing this in the middle of the court. He's with the team. He even shook the hands of the, of the legendary Duke coach, right? He's like, good game, good game. You know, he acted like he was totally part of the team. Finally, someone approached him, and they said, are you with us or are you with them? And he said, I'm with you. And they said, no, you're not. And then he booked it. He ran. He had a getaway car ready for him outside, but he got away with it, and they ran a story about it. Now, he was living his fantasy life. He was there on the court. He acted like the manager. And you might think there's, I mean, that's pretty harmless fantasy. You might not think so if you were the security guard in charge, right? But it's amazing what you can get away with if you look the part and you walk and you talk that way. What Solomon's concern for us this morning as we read these few verses is that we not try to do that kind of thing with the God of the universe. That we not dress ourselves up casually, acting like we can fool Him in this sacred court that is His world, that we not pretend like we have something or some position or some status that is beyond what we have. That we actually live in the real world, which is His world, with His sanctuary. The passage is addressed to the fool. Twice he says that we not offer the sacrifice of fools, verse 1, and then in verse 4, God has no pleasure in fools. That's quite the put down right there. I have no pleasure in the fool. And so, while you may be in this position this morning, it's, it's not the case that, that this passage is talking to the hardened atheist. It's not talking to the person who doesn't believe in God or doesn't know if they believe in God. This is actually talking to the casual Christian, the believer, or the person who comes into that, to the house of God who is in a way showing lip service to Him but has no regard for Him. So I want us to look at this fantasy and then how we can be back into reality. Here's what I want us to see today. To be casual with God is to live a fantasy. But living in proper fear of Him brings us back into reality. To be casual with God is to live a fantasy. But living in proper fear of Him, we're going to define what that is here. To live in proper fear of Him is, brings us back into reality. Three questions I want us to ask and answer. Where we live the fantasy. Why we believe the fantasy. And then thirdly, how can we live in reality? Before we dive into that first question, I just want to give us a little bit of a backdrop from verse 1 where he says, guard your steps when you go to the house 
of God. The house of God is the, in view here. This is the backdrop of what Solomon is talking about. The house of God for Solomon's day would have been the temple that he himself built. He built the temple, the house of God. But this is not the first time that the house of God has been a theme in God's people. It's there from the very beginning. We'll go back to the very, very beginning, to the Garden of Eden. Maybe you didn't know, or maybe you never slowed down to realize, but when God created the world, it wasn't true that the whole earth was the Garden of Eden. He created the world, and then He planted a garden within the world. This garden was a sanctuary. It was the first temple. Adam was the first priest in God's temple. When God gives His instructions to Adam that he should work the garden and keep it, those two words are later used and only ever used of the priesthood. That that's what they were called to do, to work and keep the house of God. The, temple, the first temple was the Garden of Eden, and Adam was the first priest. But this has always been the case. When the, there was a tabernacle later when God's people were wandering in the wilderness. This house of God was in their midst. Later, of course, the temple that David wanted to build, but then Solomon actually does build. And the tabernacle and the temple in its furnishings and its layout were, were to look exactly like the Garden of Eden. Because God has always created a house within His creation. There's always been a sanctuary in the midst of God's people. A place of God's presence. So that when we walk to the house of God, it's not just going to church that, that's in view here, but living life like God is in our midst. That He has created a holy place amongst us. This has always been true and it is true now. Because we live in the same world that God created. And now Christ is our temple. We are His body. And so the church makes up the structure of God's house. And so we are to live in relation to God's presence. The house of God, we go to worship, but we also live lives of worship like God is in our midst. It's very important that we see that as we come to now where, what Solomon's challenge is to us that we maybe are not living like that's true. So first, let's ask the question, where we live the fantasy? Solomon says it's basically in our walking and our talking. Three things he addresses. Our walk, our prayer, and our vows. Three little ways that we can see where we can kind of believe something that isn't true. We can act the part. We can go down on the sacred court, so to speak, and live in a way that isn't true. First, in our walking. Verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, what does that mean? Guard your steps. In Scripture, the language of walking is always about conduct. It's always about practice. How you present yourself. How you are being obedient. And he's saying how you should guard yourself is that you should come, <clears throat> come with intentionality and obedience. To draw near, he says, to God, to God and listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Now that's almost an exact quote from 1 Samuel 15. In that passage, I'll remind you, in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is king over Israel. The first king. And Saul has been instructed to wait for Samuel to offer a sacrifice. 
offer a sacrifice to God. And he's supposed to wait for Samuel, but Samuel is delayed. And Saul then offers the sacrifice instead. And when Samuel comes, in his anger he says to him, don't you know that to obey is better than sacrifice? Obey, the same word for listen. Same word that, that Solomon uses here. To listen. Draw near to listen. It's better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. He's talking about conduct here. Obedience. He's saying your obedience is one way that you determine how you view God. It's how well you're walking with Him. And then he moves on to prayer. Verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Now, he's not talking here in general about using our words well, even though certainly the Scriptures talk about kindness with our words and talk about not gossiping and all of those things. He's talking about here the words that we utter before God. That is, our prayer. And he says you've got to watch a couple of things in your prayer life. First, hasty speech. Be not rash with your mouth. When you pray, you're in the presence of God. You should be careful what you say. Also, many words. Let your words be few, he says. Those who are focused on their own dreams, on their own words, on their own interpretations, on their own um, voice are not focused on who God is. They're focused on how they're looking. It's the same thing that Jesus says in Matthew 6 to the Pharisees who love to hear themselves pray. And so he says, your prayer life. Just take a little slice of that. Your obedience, but also your prayer life to see what do you, how do you view God? You can see it through your prayer. Then vows. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. The, the situation here is the custom of making vows in God's temple when they would come in and say, this is what I vow to God to pay to him, that was a custom, and it was customary to, to give to display what you vow. But then he's describing a situation where a messenger comes. It's actually the same word as angel. There, it's an angel of the temple, probably someone who is sent out to collect the debts, to collect the vows that have been promised. And this this messenger of the temple comes, and you say, Ah, yeah, that was kind of a thing of the moment, right? The, you know. The lights were down. The music was emotional. Uh, I shouldn't have vowed that. I'm actually not going to pay that. He's talking about that situation where you would promise something and then not deliver it. He says, in that you show how you view God. When I was a youth pastor, I had to deal with this uh, constantly with uh, resisting the... the uh, the practice of commitment cards. One of the ways that I think this is practiced today is we make commitments. We make commi it's not just in youth culture, by the way. It's, it's in a lot of different things. To make a vow to God and write it down. As I've gotten older and older, I just have a real problem with that. Why? Because the card doesn't prevent, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't change anything to make that commitment to that teenager to 
to not have impure thoughts or to read the Bible every day for a year, at the end of the day, that commitment is weak. It's just on a card. But one thing it does accomplish is it turns them into a hypocrite. It says, this is what I promised to God and then I haven't done it. Jesus Himself had strong things to say about oaths. Vows. Now, we've just had vows in the service. Membership vows. We're not talking about all vows here. Vows to become a pastor. Vows for marriage. Vows are useful in God's kingdom. They are, they are things that the Scripture also recognizes, but they're also dangerous. If they're done casually. Remember Jesus' teaching about oaths, and then Peter forgot that as he made his oath to Jesus when Jesus said to him, the, she- the shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep will scatter. And Peter says, I will never abandon you. Even if I have to die, I will never abandon you. And Jesus says, you will deny me three times. And you can imagine him just thinking, you know, Peter, this vow is not about me. This is about you. Because oaths are rarely about God. They're actually about us. They're, they're ways that we try to prop ourselves up Some of us may be thinking, well, I, I've never done that. I've never made a vow to God. I've never done a commitment card. I, I haven't made those, those types of vows. But the passage actually says that you can make these vows in your heart. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word to the Lord. This can happen in our hearts. We know this. This kind of bargaining. If you give me this job... I'll read the Bible more. If you give me this raise, I'll start tithing. If you help me with this, I'll be more pure. Like we just we do this kind of thing, even if we're not even conscious of writing it down or thinking about it consciously, we sometimes begin to bargain in our hearts with God. The problem is that we are not in a position to bargain with God. He holds all the cards. You don't manipulate him. He actually requires all these things of us anyway. We are his creation. We live in His world. So He does require our purity and our money and our jobs and our energy and our worship. So we have to ask ourselves, as hard as it is to hear and as hard as it is to examine ourselves, how are we living the fantasy? Here's three good indicators. Your obedience. (laughs) Is there a sense in which there's a display of commitment to God, but an obedience that is not followed with your life. Your prayer. Take a little slice of your prayer life. What does that reveal about your heart towards God? The internal bargaining where you think that you can get one past God. What does that reveal about what you think? We can be living in a fantasy. And the fantasy looks like this in many different ways, but the same theme where we pay tribute to God outwardly, but ignore Him inwardly. That we walk into His presence with some display, but with no reality of following Him. That's not reality. Like the child who closes his eyes and thinks that he's invisible. That's just not what's true. Second question, why we believe the fantasy? Solomon gives us a couple of answers to this. Well, he says the answer is that you have a wrong view of God. There's two things that we forget. Two things that we forget that cause us to live in the fantasy. First, we forget where He is. 
where God is, and we forget what makes him angry. First, we forget where he is or where he lives. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart utter a hasty, be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. That's where he is. That, that sentence is like a summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. God is in heaven and you are on earth. Remember the two perspectives in Ecclesiastes, under the sun and under heaven. Under the sun, things are hard, things we don't understand, things we can't put together, things that discourage us and that make us feel like life is futile. Those all exist under the sun, but God is in heaven. So what he's saying is, look, it doesn't work to live the fantasy because God, God sees it all. It's not though you're not fooling him in your prayer life or in your bargaining or in your outward display of obedience, but inwardly you're, you're just not obeying it. You don't fool him because he's in heaven. He sees it all. He doesn't have the perspective of under the sun. You haven't pulled one past him. Secondly, we forget what makes him angry. Hard words to read. Verse 6, Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? What makes God angry? What is this anger talking about here? We have a mistake sometimes when we think about what, God's ang- what God is angry about. What we think sometimes is that God is angry at weakness and imperfection. Actually, the Scriptures tell us that it's in our weakness and in our imperfection and in our humility that we draw the heart of God toward us. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust, the Scripture says. He's not, he's not, doesn't have some bar up here that He's wanting us to achieve before He loves us. This is not what the Scripture teaches, even though we can be casual towards Him. It, it's not our imperfection or our weakness. Hebrews tells us that He is gentle with the ignorant and the wayward. He's not repulsed by our weakness and imperfection but he is angered by our hypocrisy and self-righteousness. We know this is true. Look at the New Testament. Jesus' harshest words are for the hypocrites, for the outwardly religious who then have no depth to them, the whitewashed tombs of the Pharisees who look good on the outside, but inside there is death. The anger, his anger is for them. Unless we continue to think that this is just an Old Testament thing, we look at Another scary passage, Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. That's New Testament, folks, where the, if you remember the story, Ananias and Sapphira sold a property. All, everybody had everything in common. Everybody was giving into the same pot, and so they sold a property, and they presented the proceeds of the property to the church, but they presented it as if they had sold everything and given everything away, but they were deceiving. And Peter, who receives it, says, You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You haven't lied to men, but you've lied to God. And they breathed their last. Or in Solomon's words, they destroyed the work of their hands. Now the passage in Acts is very clear that you don't have to give all of your, the money of your proceeds of your house to the church. That's not the point at all. It's not that they didn't give everything. It's that they tried to lie to God. It's serious. His harshest punishments are for those who are self-righteous and hypocritical. This is probably true in your household. It's true in my household. What makes the parents angry? What really gets them going? It's not when a child comes in repentance and says, 
I'm sorry, I did this, and so, I'm so sorry. Like, if that happened all the time, there'd be so much, right, grace and forgiveness. But when there's lying and deceiving, those are the, those are the most punishable things, right? We can forget where God is and what makes Him angry. Let's turn to the good news, how we can live in reality. This passage does show us as well, though, what reality looks like. Not just the fantasy and the things that we need to avoid. The three things I want to pull out here as we close today, how we can live in reality. The first is this, we need to draw near to God in humility. The passage is laced with humility to guard our steps as we go to the house of God, to let our words be few, to not be rash with them, to slow down, to humble ourselves. And so clearly, part of the answer is that we are to know who we are, not just who God is. Part of living in reality is having a proper assessment of yourself. To not approach God like you were righteous and full of good works, but to approach Him rather with humility. Because God always gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so we don't come on our own terms. If we just approach Him with that humility, He always receives us. Be humble. And what, you're, what you do when you're humble is you have to go all the way. Because when you start to see the right view of yourself, you will realize that what this passage asks of us is impossible for us to do. Guard your steps. When you go to the house of God, that's your obedience, your conduct. How could you ever guard yourself well enough to come into the house of God, to come into the living presence of, of the living God? Let your words be few. I'm starting to think maybe I shouldn't say anything. Maybe I shouldn't say anything to God. That's a good place to be. To, to bargain with Him? <laughs> to come to a place where you say, I can't bargain with God. To have that right view of Him and the right view of yourself? That's the place to be. That humility that grinds you all the way to the bottom where you're not worthy of this command. Then you're ready. The second thing is this. Draw near to God through a mediator. Because even though this passage talks to us about the fear of God, the Scriptures testify to us that we do not need to live in terror of God. That in fact, even if the humility that is required makes us go all the way down, it's not with that same whimpering humility that He tells us to come into His presence. Actually, the book of Hebrews tells us we come in with boldness into the throne room of God. And the reason is, is because we have a mediator. That we, when we come to the house of God, we come in Christ. In Christ, we are accepted and more than that, welcomed and celebrated at His table. And so, the, so while we need to take Solomon's words seriously and fear God, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, that doesn't mean that we live in terror of God. That can be over. The moment that we trust in Christ, we have a mediator who brings us into the presence of God. 
Christ is the temple that was destroyed and rebuilt in three days as He promised. His body, that's what He's referring to when He says the temple will be destroyed. That means He will die and in three days He will be raised from the dead. And in that resurrection, now we have this new temple. Christ dwells in our midst. Like the garden, like the tabernacle, like the temple. He is in our midst. And so we draw, when we draw near to the house of God, we draw near in Christ. Or we don't draw near at all. Draw near to God through a mediator. Third and finally, draw near to God with proper fear. The fact that we are in Christ does not mean that we should not fear God still. We're not terrified of God, but we still fear Him. Verse 7 for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. These words are still true for us. We must fear God. What does that mean? How do we define that? Some people say, well, this has nothing to do with being scared of God. It only has to do with respect or reverence. And others will say, no, actually, if you look at the Bible, it's, it does seem like at times people are actually really terrified of God. The, answer, the, the truth is there's an overlap of the words here. Or the word is, is in many different situations. To fear God. What does that mean? I'm going to define it this way for us this morning. The fear of God is an awe that leads to a controlling influence. It is an awe that leads to a controlling influence. It's a wonder. It's an amazement at who God is. But it's also a response that we then live in light of His truth. I now must live differently. I must think differently. And no one captures this better than C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia with his picture of Aslan, who is this repeatedly called the untamed lion. He is a lion. He is fearful. There are times when the children are scared of him. There are other times when they are playful with him, but they're never casual. They're never casual with Aslan. They never predict what he's going to do. They're never in control of him. They never can put him in a box and understand exactly who he is. He comes at mysterious times. times. He, he affects them even when, they, when he seems to not show up. And this is the way it is with the Lord. He commands all, but he also is our controlling influence. And this is not opposed to grace. I love this quote from Derek Kidner. He says, No amount of emphasis on grace can justify taking liberties with God. For the very concept of grace demands gratitude, and gratitude cannot be casual. Gratitude cannot be casual. We know this. Every single one of us who has kids, and we say, Say thank you, and they say, Thank you. We say, No, say it again, right? That gratitude is not real if it's casual. And we must be so grateful for what God has done three times over. He has created us. And so we owe everything to Him as our Creator. He sustains and governs us. So we owe everything to His providence. He saves us. We owe our salvation and redemption to Him. And so therefore, He is the controlling influence of our lives. We fear Him. We live in awe of Him and we make our lives about Him. He is in our midst. And if we act like He's not in our midst, then we live in a fantasy. 
And so we have to ask ourselves, is there some part of God's word or his character that challenges us so much that we find it objectionable, that we walk away from it because we don't like it? That's fantasy. To live in fear of him means that we bow to his way, his truth, his perspective. And we ask ourselves, is there another controlling influence? What is the controlling influence? Is it a certain person's opinion? Is it a certain trending hashtag or perspective that we need to flaunt? Is it a respected person's opinion? Is it the influence of scholarship that we've read? What is it that is the controlling influence? Solomon says, God is the one you must fear. We live in the midst of His sanctuary. And thanks be to God, He has not... He has not created us just to walk on eggshells around him that's not the picture that Solomon has for us to live in fear of him yes but in Christ we have every access with boldness to come in and so it's with that boldness that we cling and as we come to the table this morning we remind that that's through that's how we have that confidence it's only because of Christ let's pray